from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. President Biden will tap national security official Sasha Baker as his nominee for Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Baker has served as national security advisor for Senator Elizabeth Warren and as deputy chief of staff to the Secretary of Defense. The Senate confirmed Colin Call as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy back in April. The Army's critical missile defense system will play a role at Project Convergence, Defense News reports. Project Convergence is a series of exercises the Army conducts to contribute to the joint all-domain command and control concept. The Army will check the progress of the critical missile defense system following its initial operational test. The trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill will not include a $50 billion boost to defense funding. Republican lawmakers pushed to add that defense infrastructure fund for shipyards, training ranges, and modernization projects inside defense reports. The Senate did not vote on the amendment to the bill, but passed the infrastructure bill yesterday. The Federal Trade Commission is reviewing its guidelines on vertical mergers, or a company's acquisition of other components in its supply chain. But these guidelines jeopardize national security, according to General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force retired. He's president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. He's former commander of Air Combat Command, and he's writing about vertical mergers and national security for Defense News. General, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Mimi. It's great to see you. Well, Appreciate you being on. Competition is good and healthy for an economy. What is it about the FTC's stance on vertical mergers that's worrying you? Well, I think, you know, it's the, the change in the way the, the ecosystem for innovation works in this country. In the past, you know, federal dollars went into defense and NASA and federal programs and, and a lot of innovation and technology was developed and then it spun off into the commercial world or large companies like, you know, back in, in the day when Bell Labs was part of AT&T, uh, there was a lot of innovation there that went into defense and then spun off into commercial. But the ecosystem today is really um, the small innovative startups that are trying new and, and groundbreaking technologies and then venture capitalists that take bets on whether those are gonna work or not. A majority of them don't. Uh, but you have the venture capitalists that are investing in these small startups. And the idea that you cannot then merge these small innovative startups with larger companies that have the ability to scale their technology and really produce for the, for the government and for the Department of Defense, you really inhibit that, uh, that innovation ecosystem uh, if, if the FTC is really hard over about these vertical mergers. Yeah, so what is the position that the FTC is taking and and why do you think it's important for them to kind of relook at that position? So today, the, the, I think what the F, FTC sees it as a limited competition, but it really isn't because you know, it's not vertical mergers aren't companies buying their competition. They're just buying somebody in the supply chain. Um, and, and, and so I think the FTC position, they did lower the standards so more of these uh, mergers are coming into the into the realm of the FTC for for consideration, uh, so that's part of the problem. But I, I think um, there are cases where there's a thin supply chain and competitors are all buying from the same supplier, 
And in that case, a vertical merger can potentially inhibit competition. But in that case, the FTC could find a way to mitigate that by, you know, making an, an access agreement uh, for other companies to buy from that uh, supply chain. So there's ways to mitigate that challenge, but that's the only place where it really limits competition is where the supply chain is dwindling down to either one or just a couple of uh, suppliers. Uh, and if somebody buys that in a merger acquisition, uh, then you can potentially limit somebody else, a competitor from getting that same supply, but they can mitigate that risk, I think, going forward. You know, you've said that the, the FTC's kind of negative stance on, on vertical mergers can harm national security. General, can you give me a specific example where that could be the case? Um, I, I don't know if I can give you a specific example. I, you know, I, I think what I would say is there's cases where um, I think it's a real, real limiting problem. You know, our supply chain in the United States defense industrial base is fragile, and we learned that even more so during COVID. So there's cases where uh, the supply chain is dwindling, and and some suppliers, maybe the sole remaining supplier for defense capability, um, Energetics is one that you can think of. Or, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of different uh, cases where there's only one supplier left. And unfortunately, because of the market environment, because of predatory practices by our potential adversaries out there, uh, that they can't stay they can't stay functioning. So if they're not vertically merged with a company that can support them and scale them, uh, then they'll go out of business and you'll end up having not having that supply chain uh, that has access to the Department of Defense. So I, I think that's the biggest problem going forward. So let's talk about competition with China, both economically and militarily. How do vertical mergers play into that? So China is obviously autocratic and, and they, you know, basically the government has access to whatever and every technology that they want from that's produced in that country and they're doing everything in their power to steal technology and to copy technology or to buy technology and then scale it uh, within their system. And so in, in that system, they can put money wherever they want. They can dictate companies do what they want them to do. And that provides a level of speed. Um, in, in our case, in the United States, in a free enterprise system and the values that we hold is, we allow companies to go out and do that. And that's why vertical mergers are so important. Companies will often, um, spin off or there'll be a, a, a small startup that has a great technology and they'll and they'll develop it and it'll pay off and venture capitalists will invest in it to give them the ability to make a payoff and then it needs to be merged with a larger company that can scale it and get it to market at the level it needs to get if you cut off these vertical mergers um, then you're probably going to limit that amount of venture capital that's going to go into these small startups and you're going to limit that innovation that is being pushed by the Chinese and trying to replace us both militarily and economically. Finally, General, if you could speak directly to the FDC commissioners right now, what would you say to them? Well, I would say to them, look at the ecosystem that is in the, the innovation in our country today. And it's these small startups, very innovative. That's the power of our people, the power of the American people uh, to develop new ideas, to think outside of the box and come up with solutions. They need that venture capitalist money to be able to develop it and to survive, to get to that level of success with their technologies. And then it needs to be able to scale to support this country across both the commercial sector and the federal sector. And so they need to be able to merge. So what I'd ask FTC commissioners is to look at that ecosystem and understand it 
And in cases where it does limit competition, find ways to mitigate, i.e. access agreements and other things going forward. All right, well, General Carlisle, nice talking to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. It was great talking to you, Mimi, thank you. Coming next, a waterfall of data for the Navy's Information Warfare Forces. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a conversation with the Vice Commander for NAV I-4. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Last week, the Government Matters team attended the Navy League's Sea Air Space Conference. My colleague, Alan Holmes, spoke with Rear Admiral Gene Price, Vice Commander for the Naval Information Forces. Here's a look at that conversation. We're here with Rear Admiral Gene Price. He's the Vice Commander of the Naval Information Forces Command. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. Well, let me just start off. Um, what is the Naval Information Forces Command? Okay, uh, NAV I-4, as we call it in the Navy, um, Navy Information Forces is space, cryptology, uh, cyber, intelligence, uh, electronic warfare, uh, oceanography, meteorology, IT, um, ICS, uh, internal control systems, uh, internet pr uh, information protocols, all those things brought together is information warfare because they all touch and concern and are primarily looking at data, information. And now the Navy was, all the services are looking at doing this in some capacity or uh, a different architecture, but the Navy was first. So we've been going through the trials and travails that come with being first, but at the same time we've learned a lot and we found out that uh, we actually integrate much better than anyone thought we would this, this quickly. So that's really what we are. Okay. Well, why is information warfare so important to the Navy? Uh, information warfare, uh, it informs everything the Navy does. The first brief that a, a commander afloat or a commander ashore usually takes is start with your um, meteorologist. Okay, what's the weather like? That's us. Your next brief is the intelligence, is the threat brief. Who's trying to hurt us? So it actually starts with exactly what we do. And we present the threats, we analyze the threats, we communicate what those threats might be, we make sure that the right sensors are at the right place so we understand the battle space, so we're aware of what's going on. Uh, we have to pull all these disciplines together to integrate fires, as we call it, in other words, everything from a non-kinetic fire like cyber to a kinetic fire like a JDAM or a, a Tomahawk, uh, making sure those are in the right place at the right time and with very little collateral damage, if, it, if at all, is always our goal. Uh, and at the same time, we also make sure that our command and control is omnipresent. It's uh, any commander anywhere can get her or his intent made known to subordinates, and we ensure that capacity. Okay. Um, there's something uh, called the Enterprise Warfare, inter uh, excuse me, Information Warfare Enterprise. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that and where you are in deploying this and, and explain how all this is, uh, comes together? Well, the Enterprise is kind of a, uh, pulling together those first two questions you asked. Uh, that's the METOC community. 
which is based down in Mississippi. In the METOC being? Uh, I'm sorry, you know, thank okay. you. Meteorology, oceanography, uh -huh. they're uh, the same team. Yeah. Uh, the intelligence folks, which uh, had their headquarters in Suitland, Maryland, uh, and then our IP and cryptologists, which are based out of Fort Meade and also down in Suffolk, Virginia, right across the street from where we are. And those are our enterprises, if you will. And we are the ones that pull them together as NAVI4 to do the manpower, to make sure that everyone's trained, and to make sure that everyone's equipped to the right level so that our readiness is such that the, the generation of forces can occur quickly and timely. If the president says go, we'll be ready to go. It sounds like an incredible amount of data and incredible, I mean, you, you just went down the whole list of what you, you cover. It sounds like it, you, it's the whole waterfront. Yes. Uh, how difficult of a management uh, uh, responsibility is that and, and pulling all this together? It sounds just like an enormous job. It is, and that job primarily falls. Uh, well, we are the folks that, again, we what's called MT&E, uh, man, train, and equip it. But we primarily rely upon the good folks at NAVWAR, mm -hmm. Navy Warfare Systems Command in San Diego, and also NIWIC PAC out there in NIWIC Lant, which is in Charleston, and also uh, Fleet Cybercom 10th Fleet, which is not too far from here, uh, up at Fort Meade. And it is a terrifically complex job. Uh, if you're talking uh, internal control systems, all the, the little systems that make a warfare system work, they might actually be embedded as a part of the IT network inside a weapon system. So making sure that system can talk to um, the space components, talk to the serialized components, and they all tend to run different uh, software, they tend to run different operating systems, and that's one of the things that we're really getting after with operate with the overmatch, which we've been talking a lot here uh, at Sea uh, Airspace. So it's a terrifically complicated problem, as you you've already pointed out, uh, but it's one that we have to get better at, and I think we are doing that in ways that are really groundbreaking, and we're doing that with the help of industry. They're helping us get to that cutting edge. Well, let's just go right right to that. Uh, we and we have about uh, 30 seconds or so left. And uh, how is industry? What's their role? How are they helping you out? Once the industry can assimilate and understand where we are, especially at the classified level, which they can get at industry days, which the next one is in late September at NAVWAR, uh, Navy Warfare Systems. That's our sweet spot to get them uh, to appreciate the problems we have and then give us that world-class information, know-how that American industry, especially the IT industry, is so good at and bringing that in with their ideas to make us better. We have gotten to the point where we, we're embracing the red, where we're not as good as we need to be, swarming it, bringing in industry as needed so that we can meet that demand signal. Okay, well, thank you very much for being here. Oh, really thanks for the it. invite. Up next, advancing battle technology for the future force. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the five elements the Pentagon needs to define battle networks. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back.
Pentagon tests machine learning technologies aiming to increase data sharing among combatant commands. Those experiments are part of the larger Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2, guiding framework. Todd Harrison is Director of Defense Budget Analysis and the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's writing about battle networks and the future force for CSIS. Todd, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, what is JADC2 and what's its purpose? Yeah, so JADC2 stands for Joint All Domain Command and Control, uh, and it's the military's vision for what their battle network should look like in the future. And the idea is you wanna make uh, all of these different platforms and payloads and sensors uh, across our military work together and be able to share data more seamlessly, securely, and reliably. And then you also wanna extend that interoperability to our allies and partners uh, that fight alongside us. Uh, and this is important because in modern warfare, advantage accrues to those who can see farther and clearer, act faster and at a greater range, and then be able to deny the ability to do so to the other side. Uh, so that's what the, uh, the idea is behind JADC2. And, and the, the JADC2 framework is important to testing new warfare technologies. It is, and, and so to understand how we can get more advantage uh, from the new technologies that we're fielding. You know, if you take, for example, the F-35 is our latest fifth generation strike fighter. Um, you know, it was not built with this idea of integration in, in mind. And so the F-35 can't actually communicate directly uh, with our other fifth generation fighter, the F-22. And so that's something that DOD is increasingly working on. How can we get these things to interoperate uh, with one another and ultimately build a larger network of networks uh, where you know an F-35, an F-22, uh, uh, a tank on the ground, a ship at sea, a satellite up in space can all connect in different ways uh, seamlessly uh, and with resilience. So along with testing machine learning capabilities, what are some of the efforts underway now for JADC2 and military battle networks? Well, there are a lot of efforts underway right now. So within JADC2, you've got the Air Force. Uh, their main contribution is known as the Advanced Battle Management System, ABMS. The Navy's got uh, something it's working on called Project Overmatch. Uh, the Army has got something called Project Convergence. Uh, and then you've got other smaller projects going on in DARPA and uh, the Office of Secretary of Defense uh, for Research and Engineering. They've got a number of efforts going on. Uh, and even some of the COCOMs, like Special Operations Command, uh, are trying to develop some of the enabling technologies that will ultimately uh, go into JADC2 in the future. So you write in your report that the progress for advancing battle networks is slow, despite that, that obviously we need to move a little bit faster on that. Why, is, why has progress been slow? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, one is it requires a cultural shift away from focusing on the big platforms to instead focus on payloads things like sensors and communications and data processing. Uh, and also I think that there's been a bit of a failure of communication within the military and between the military and Congress. And some of the funding cuts that we've seen have been due in part to the inability of the services to clearly articulate what exactly they're building. 
right? They're very good at articulating the need, uh, the threats, uh, the advantage uh, that JADC2 will provide. But when it comes to talking about what exactly are these programs building, um, there's not been a lot of detail in some cases. So tell me about the, the five functional elements that you define. Um, you talk about sensor, communications, processing decision, effects. What does all this mean and how can that outline help speed up the progress for these overall battle networks? Yeah, well, I propose this framework of five functional elements just to help give people a common lexicon for talking about JADC2 so they can better define what piece of the problem they're working on. And so you need all of these things to build a battle network, right? You need sensors, you need communication systems. So we're talking about radios, uh, things like that. Um, you need data processing elements uh, where you can actually process that sensor data um, and do analysis on it. Uh, and then you need decision elements, uh, you know, where you've got decision makers that you can even put uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms uh, in that to help aid decision making, or in some cases for lower level decisions, you could automate it. Uh, and then of course you have the effects element. That's when you go out and actually do something uh, to affect the battle space. Uh, it could be kinetic or non-kinetic, right? And so, you know, we've got to better define and communicate, you know, what is ABMS building? Is it building communication, part of the communication element? Is it building part of the sensor element? Um, you know, what is it? Or is it multiple uh, elements that it is working on? And so I think, you know, just having a better framework for communicating that will go a long way to building support in Congress, uh, better, you know, communicating among the military services, and, you know, making sure that we are making progress uh, moving these capabilities forward. Well, Todd, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for being on the program. I appreciate it. Glad I could do it. Thank you. You can find a link to Todd's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website too. And we want to hear what you think of the program or any of the topics we discuss. Find us on social media and send us your comments. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.